welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt, the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event that will take place April 12th through 14th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. And get your tickets today at our special early bird rate. And right now through December 18th, you can register to win a free ticket to our CanMed Medical Practicum, which will take place on April 12th. It's all part of our CanMed Giving Back campaign, and it's very simple to enter. All you have to do is go to canmedevents.com, click on the CanMed Giving Back banner, fill out the form, and you'll be entered to win. And actually, if you follow us on social media, you will earn some additional entries. So please do go to canmedevents.com, check out the Giving Back campaign, and good luck. In other news, we've started a Facebook group. Each year, we are consistently blown away by the amazing presentations, inspiring conversations, and important connections that are made at the annual CanMed conference. So we decided to keep the conversations flowing online with our CanMed community group. The CanMed community is our virtual forum, allowing you to interact directly with many of the CanMed conference speakers, past attendees, and other group members to discuss all things cannabis from bench to the bedside. Use the link in the show description to visit that group today and join. Our guest this episode is Dr. Stacy Gruber. She is the Director of Cognitive and Clinical Neuroimaging Care at McLean Hospital's Brain Imaging Center and an Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Gruber has spent decades investigating how both recreational and medical cannabis use affects the brain. In 2014, Dr. Gruber launched MIND, which stands for Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery, the first ever program of its kind designed to clarify the specific effects of medical cannabis use. What she and her team have found is that not only do medical cannabis patients tend to perform better on cognitive tests when compared to recreational users, but medical cannabis patients tend to outperform themselves when compared to tests administered before they started treatment. Stacy and I explore why this may be the case in our conversation, and we also discuss some results from MIND's double-blind, placebo-controlled CBD clinical trial for anxiety, which uses a high CBD whole plant extract. Spoiler alert, the cognitive performance data is pretty consistent with the team's earlier work. Other interesting observations from the study include, patients using whole plant extract tend to use smaller doses than single compound therapeutics. As you would expect, this led us to discuss the entourage effect and the benefits of using full spectrum products. However, it was interesting that some patients in the trial still tested positive for THC despite the fact that the hemp-derived extract contained less than 0.3 milligrams per ml of THC. Lots of good stuff in this conversation, but first I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Healer. Healer is a trusted physician-developed medical cannabis brand founded to address the challenges of helping patients 
and health providers get the best results with safe, reliably dosable products and education on how to use them best. Healer's distinctive product formulations and educational material are based on the work of leading cannabis clinician, Dr. Dustin Sulak. Dr. Sulak's Healer Hemp CBD and CBDA products are available nationwide and are accompanied with a step-by-step -step usage guide and response tracker. Visit HealerCBD.com and use the coupon code CANMED for 20% off your order. Again, that's HealerCBD.com, coupon code CANMED. And it wouldn't be the CANMED Coffee Talk podcast without some good coffee. And for that, we always turn to the Hemp and Coffee Exchange. If you don't know, Hemp Coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product, rich in trace minerals and nutrients, providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out HempCoffeeExchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stacy Gruber. Good afternoon, Stacy. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. First of all, I want to thank you not only for joining us on the podcast, but for being a two-time CanMed presenter. Um, I know that in 2019, we were thrilled to have you as a keynote presenter where you shared the data that you and your team have collected about how cannabis affects cognitive function, which is quite extensive. But for listen, listeners who might not be too familiar with you or the work that your team is doing, I was thinking that a great place to start would be for you to fill them in on the work that you've been doing. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of CanMed, let's start with that. And um, I actually think I've been three times. It's an extraordinary conference, and it really is um, probably the, the very best of its kind that's out there. And I, I am very fond of telling people that. So there you have it. Um, but just by way of, I think, a little bit of background, I've spent uh, decades actually looking at the impact of recreational cannabis use on things like cognitive performance, clinical state, measures of brain structure and function, et cetera, with a particular focus on what we call the vulnerable brain. So what happens to individuals who may begin using cannabis regularly while their brain is still uh, developing, or as I like to call it, half-baked. Um, those studies um, from our lab and from colleagues across the country, and really, in fact, the globe, demonstrate that there appear to be some differences in those who begin using cannabis regularly, especially with regard to, again, some of these cognitive measures, especially those mediated by the frontal part of the brain. Now, that's the recreational story, and it seems to hold for, again, early onset regular cannabis users, and there's a relationship between earlier onset higher magnitude, that is higher amount of use and higher frequency of use, and maybe not doing quite as well on some of these measures as other folks who use uh, regularly starting later when their brains are more fully developed or who start, you know, when they're, when they're you know, in their 40s or, or later. Um, that's the recreational story uh, that, we've, that we've spent a lot of time looking at. But I was very surprised when I looked in the literature since medical cannabis was first legalized in the States in 1996, I couldn't find much with regard to the impact of medical cannabis use and the potential impact of that type of, of cannabis use on measures of, again, cognitive performance, clinical state, quality of life, sleep, 
uh, conventional medication use, again, despite the fact that it's been around uh, for a long time. So we started a program called MIND, Marijuana Investigations for Neuroscientific Discovery. It really should have cannabis in the name. <laughs> right. But states have medical marijuana laws, so we stuck with MIND. And that program is really dedicated specifically to looking at the potential impact of medical cannabis use on all of those domains I mentioned and others using lots of different um, approaches. So longitudinal observational data, which was the first uh, set of studies that we launched, survey-based data, um, and finally clinical trial data, which I'm very, very excited about. Excellent. And in doing my research for this conversation, it seemed like, and you touched on it in your, in your great summary, that the, the studies that you've done can be sort of broken into a few different broad groups. Um, one first, as you mentioned, depending on user type, the recreational versus the medical, and then age, adolescent versus adult. And then I'm curious too, um, does some of those findings have to do with the type of product being used, whether it be kind of high CBD versus high THC? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are, those are great, um, great points. And, you know, the very first thing I always like to remind people of, because, you know, first of all, cannabis is, is a, a highly polarizing topic, right? Um, I've never actually dealt with anything in psychiatry or neuroscience that's quite as, um, as much of a hot topic as cannabis and maybe a hot potato. People have very strong feelings on both sides, you know? Either it's, you know, the, the devil's weed, the devil's lettuce, and, and it should be outlawed immediately, if not sooner, or we should put it in the drinking water. And, you know, with those types of, of feelings, it's sometimes difficult to get people to acknowledge cannabis is not one thing. You know, we have a cannabis sativa L, the plant, that is the, you know, the, the plant from which everything comes. And then we have things that are single extracted constituents of the plant, right? The main player is Delta 9 THC, the main psychoactive or intoxicating constituent. And as you appropriately note, cannabidiol or CBD, a primary non-intoxicating constituent, but there are lots and lots of other cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, things from the plant that interact with our own system of um, chemicals and receptors, the endocannabinoid system. There are terpenoids, the essential oils that give cannabis its characteristic scent and flavor profile that have their own biobehavioral effects, flavonoids, waxy phenols, you name it, lots of different things. Cannabis is not one thing. Whole plant full spectrum products, very different from single extracted purified compounds, something like an Epidiolex purified CBD, likely very different from a non-plant derived, that is, I made it in the lab, synthetic THC, something like um, uh, Marinol. All of these things are likely to confer different effects, but I thought one thing that you mentioned was incredibly important and I spent a lot of time reminding people, recreational or adult cannabis use is very different from medical cannabis use when you look at the cohorts, that is the population, um, and that's because their goals are different. The recreational consumer is typically looking to change their current state of being or to get high, and thus they look for products high in THC, that primary psychoactive constituent, our medical patients almost always say, Dr. Gruber, I don't want to get high. I just want to be able to drive my car. I just want to be able to sleep through the night. 
And as a result, our medical patients often choose products with a broader cannabinoid constituent profile that is often um, dominated by non-intoxicating constituents like CBD. So when we look at the data that come from our studies of recreational consumers or adult consumers of cannabis versus medical con consumers or medical patients, the data does look different and very likely because the goals of use tend to drive product selection. Yeah, and that is, as you said, a very important distinction. But, and I'm curious, is there sort of a third type of user in there that maybe isn't interested in the recreational high and maybe doesn't have, um, you know, a severe condition that really needs medical use, but maybe is interested in using cannabis just for a general wellness mm -hmm. supplement? Sure, that's a great point. And actually, I'm a, a firm believer in exactly that kind of approach. I think a lot of people, when they begin to understand the potential of exploiting the non-intoxicating constituents from the plant, given the potential health benefits they may confer, they look to use it as prophylaxis or health and wellness, as opposed to I'm treating a symptom or a condition or looking to get high. To your point, I think a lot of products that are currently on the market that are classified as hemp-derived, meaning they come from a cultivar with less than 0.3% THC by weight, um, that's exactly what people are using it for. Um, and they've, they've decided that this is a, a likely a very helpful and not likely very harmful thing to add to their daily regimen. And so I'm curious in terms of looking at cognitive effects, um, is there a difference there? Have you been able to look into that? Um, I know that you, you've mentioned that uh, folks who use cannabis for a medicinal purpose actually perform better on a lot of the, the measures that you've been looking at. Is there any, any look into those who are kind of using it uh, as a supplement or general wellness? Do they perform worse, better, stay the same? A great question. You know, so far we really have data from what I would call the two primary cohorts. But again, your point is a good one. That, that third cohort um, is an important one to think about. Recreational consumers, we know with earlier onset and higher frequency and magnitude of use, we tend to see some difficulties with tasks that are controlled or mediated by that frontal part of the brain, which not coincidentally, is the last uh, part of the brain to become fully developed or to come online. So that's not surprising, right? So if you begin to use anything, whether it's cannabis or other substances, alcohol, um, or if you're injured or you're ill, very possibly you may sustain uh, some damage or, or have some issues completing tasks required, um, or, or which require the part of the brain that's not yet fully developed. The medical cannabis patient story is very different, and we have published uh, some really interesting data on rather small samples, but compelling samples of well-characterized medical patients demonstrating that at baseline, where they have no cannabis on board, and then, you know, after being tested at three months, six, 12, 18, and 24, we generally not only don't see decrements in performance, specifically on those same types of tasks that the recreational consumers show some difficulty with if they're early onset users, they actually do show some improvement, which is really quite stunning. I don't think people necessarily expected that. So those negative effects that, that affect the recreational users, is that sort of an acute sort of effect? Or is that something that can be overcome if you stop use? Or is that sort of a lasting effect that can um, continue? Great question. Um, you know, there have been studies, um, longitudinal studies that actually follow folks over time, and they try to identify individuals who began using early 
um, versus those who began using later. And then you, you see how things sort of, quote, turn out long term and what happens after um, a protracted period of absence. Lots of studies look at absence periods that are um, several days to several weeks. But the bigger question is really what happens if you stop using and how do you look compared to where you, where you were when you, um, when you were using? You know, I think that there is a fair amount of evidence suggesting that for individuals who are using um, with great frequency and at high amounts who happen to be young, um, when they take a break or cut down, they do tend to look a little bit different. So it's not as if there's this, quote, long-term damage. And again, damage is a relative term. It's not as if we're seeing, you know, data that suggests these people can't do anything. Um, and I, I want to make that very clear. It's, uh, you know, in our studies, when we looked at people who were using very, very high amounts of cannabis um, very frequently, it's not as if these people can't perform or can't function. It's that on specific tests, we really did see some differences in those folks versus those who began using much later on who didn't use at all. Uh, I think a number of studies have demonstrated that performance does improve with protracted periods of abstinence or reduction in the amount of use, again, primarily in those folks who are using early on. So you mentioned when we were sort of talking about the difference between adolescents and adults. I'm, I'm curious, in adolescents who are looking to use cannabis to treat conditions like anxiety or depression or anything like that, are there considerations that need to be taken for, for them? I think absolutely. I think for anybody, but especially for those who I consider our most vulnerable consumers. Those are the folks who are in their, their adolescent or, or emerging adults. Again, the brain is, quote, uh, again, under construction, half-baked, whatever euphemism you want to use, um, not quite done. Um, and we always tell people we're not saying just say no, we're saying just not yet. And for those folks, it's especially important to remember that Delta 9 THC, again, the primary constituent appears to be, appears to be what confers the greatest um, potential decrement later on. So we don't have much in the way of data suggesting that exposure to other cannabinoid constituents like CBD cause problems later. So for folks with anxiety um, or difficulty with, with things related to anxiety or perhaps some other conditions, um, products high in CBD with very low or perhaps even no THC may be, may be a consideration versus products with discernible and uh, sometimes not so insignificant amounts of THC. For people with anxiety, it's also important to remember we have a whole set of studies dedicated um, to looking at, at patients with uh, moderate to severe anxiety. It's important to remember that THC appears to have um, a, a very interesting impact on symptoms related to anxiety. At low doses, THC may be anxiolytic. That is, it may relieve anxiety. Ah, oh, it took the edge off. I'm chilling. I feel okay. At low doses. At high doses, THC can exacerbate or increase anxiety um, or be what we call anxiogenic. That is, make anxiety significantly worse or create anxiety. So it's a very important thing to be mindful of, especially in a day where we are, I mean, bombarded with products. That, you know, the concentrate market starts life at about 35, 40% THC and goes north. Mm -hmm. From there. And for some folks, that's absolutely okay, I'm sure. For people and patients with anxiety, that can be a real problem. So it's important to know, quote, what's in your weed, which is why we conduct laboratory analyses of all of our patients' um, most commonly used products. Interesting. And so what are, what compounds are you looking for when you, when you test it? Are you looking at 
uh, terpenes and flavonoids and stilbenoids. The more I talk to people about all the different compounds that are in the plant, it's staggering. Amazing. Yeah, it's an extremely complex plant. And so incredibly fascinating as far as I'm, I'm concerned. No, um, you know, for our study subjects, given the extraordinary cost of these um, analyses, but the absolute need for us to know, because the observational longitudinal study, which again, follows real world folks using real world products. I'm not actually creating a product in those studies. We're just following patients um, and allowing them to use whatever products they choose, but then we want to know what's in the product because as you have probably also heard, very often what's on the label does not reflect what's actually in the product and that's oh, yeah. a problem. So we're really um, having uh, cannabinoid constituent profiling done. So 13 cannabinoids are quantified. For our clinical trial data, um, you know, before we ever get to the stage where we're administering anything, everything is profiled and analyzed, including, you know, the terpenoid profile, because if we're aiming for a specific profile, we want to make sure we've hit it. But, you know, I think the patients find it incredibly helpful, especially those who are spending lots of money on products that purport to have, let's say, 30 mg per mil of CBD, right? An online product, hemp derived, so it's legal, they buy it, it can be shipped to them at home. Um, and they wonder why they don't notice anything. And then we, we test it for them and they find out they don't feel anything because it's got less than one mig per mil or something like that. Mm. Uh, that's, that's terrible. Yeah, that's going to be incredibly frustrating for patients and probably even equally frustrating for you as a researcher to not have a consistent product to be able to um, kind of limit those variables. Absolutely. I mean, there are some products that continue and can, they continue and consistently test um, exactly where they should. And that's great in terms of some of these uh, manufacturers. That's terrific. Unfortunately, not all are created equally. Um, and for these studies where we are relying on patients to use the products that they select, we want them to be getting you know, what they are supposed to be getting. For the clinical trials, of course, we have a lot more control over it. But by and large, I think it's a really helpful piece of information and a very valuable tool for our patients to, to be able to see, ooh, this is not exactly what I bargained for. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about the clinical trial. We're fortunate enough to have received several INDs or investigational new drug approvals for a number of indications, including um, anxiety and pain. But starting first with anxiety, we actually had the very first ever uh, study of whole plant, full spectrum, high CBD, low THC, but not no THC, sublingual uh, solution that was formulated for patients uh, with moderate to severe anxiety. And that's an open label to double blind placebo controlled trial. We intended the open label phase to also be a little bit of a dose finding study because look, this has never been done. And we know in studies that use single extracted compounds like Epidiolex, um, you know, the doses that are being used are incredibly high. That's also true of non-plant derived cannabidiol sources that have been used in studies of, for example, things like social anxiety disorder. So the question is, you know, using a whole plant full spectrum product, would we need the same kind of dose? And anecdotally, we hear that people experience tremendous relief using some products that they get online at significantly lower doses. So we pitched it that way. And the open label phase was designed to look at 15 folks who received the study product that I formulated and they take it three times a day. It's a sublingual solution. So they take one mil three times a day, hold it under their tongue for as long as they can. Um, and we basically see them every week. Um, 
And we actually also look at THC positive status over time because the other question for lots of folks across the country is, hey, if I'm using something that's derived from hemp, I'm never going to be positive for THC. And I don't have to worry about it if, if you know, my, my workplace is testing or if I'm worried about any other kind of, um, of surveillance. I'm, I shouldn't worry because it's from hemp. I can never be positive. And we were very interested in figuring out whether that was true or not because I don't think, I didn't think it was true. Now we know it's not true. <laughs> um, but uh, so far, we've completed the open label phase and we have not published the clinical or the cognitive data yet. But I can tell you that the data is really rather extraordinary and quite compelling. And it looks as if relative to baseline after a four-week trial with this custom-formulated high CBD, uh, low THC, but full-spectrum product, symptoms, symptoms related to anxiety are significantly decreased over time. We also see some improvements in symptoms related to depression, and we see improvements on measures of cognitive performance. So these these findings actually mirror what we're seeing in the larger longitudinal but observational studies. So that's that's pretty interesting. Absolutely. And a lot of things to unpack here. The first being lower doses of the whole plant extract actually being as effective as the higher dose of the single compound. Um, is that the entourage effect? <laughs> it's a great question. And that's exactly why we added an arm to this particular study. So this study was designed, as I mentioned, open label to double blind. The double blind is, you know, patients either get placebo or they get the whole plant full spectrum product. But what if we could make a, a product that used the same base that I created the study product from, from, but stripped away the other cannabinoid constituents, the terpenoids, the flavonoids, everything, except for the CBD? What would that yield? I don't know the answer to that, but that would be a perfectly matched arm, right? And that would tell us definitively. Uh, my, my hunch is that we're going to see some differences, but I don't know. And yes, to your point, I am a firm believer that whether it's the synergy between cannabinoid constituents, terpenoids, flavonoids, et cetera, um, or just a few of the, the cannabinoids themselves, there is clearly something that is an additive property or effect at using a whole plant, full or even broad spectrum type product versus a single extracted compound. Yeah, and that, I mean, it makes sense in conversations I've had with folks who are studying the endocannabinoid system. It, it seems to be a very, complex system with a lot of different compounds interacting and enzymes and receptors and it, it seems unlikely that it's just one compound that's producing this great effect. Absolutely and if you look at the ways in which each of the sort of well-known cannabinoid constituents exert or modulate effects for example THC at CB1 or even CB2 receptors versus CBD which does not appear to modulate its effects um, through that system at all, but uses 5-HT1A, TRIP, vanilla receptors, all, all sorts of other things happening here. Um, again, I think you get a bigger bang for the buck, so to speak, when you're using something that's a full or broad spectrum product. And it will be really something to be able to actually have data, empirically sound data, to support that theory, which is a theory that you know some of us have had for a long time, but I can understand on the other side, people say, look, a molecule is a molecule, and you know, it's probably just this. Well, I'm not so sure. And another thing about um, uh, that stood out to me when you were talking about the clinical trial is, again, you're seeing the improvement in cognitive function um, for folks that are using cannabis. So do you have any idea of what's sort of causing this improvement in cognitive function? Is it 
you know, actually that it's making the brain work better? Is it that they're using less of other medications or some combination of all of these factors? Another really good question. Um, so, you know, the, for a four-week clinical trial, here's what I can say. When you see improvements in cognitive performance and you also see clinical improvements, so a reduction in anxiety or let's say depressive symptoms, the question is, are they doing better on cognitive tasks because they're less anxious and then they can actually focus more effectively? Um, is it that they are no longer leaning into or leaning on concomitant medications like benzodiazepines or other anxiolytics that can compromise cognitive performance. We're not necessarily powered to see that from the open label phase. Uh, we will look more closely at that in the double blind phase. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things at play. Again, the longitudinal observational study that we've been doing for several years at this point, again, it looks at folks using their own regimen over time with a really comprehensive set of assessments. And so far, what we're seeing is improvements in cognitive performance and clinical state, quality of life, sleep, et cetera, and a reduction in conventional medications. So the question becomes, is it that these folks are older than uh, you know, our recreational consumers who showed some decrements on some of these cognitive measures? Is it that their clinical symptoms that have led them to wanting to use cannabis in the first place, whether it's chronic pain or you know, in our clinical trial, anxiety, et cetera, so those symptoms are better so they can focus more effectively and think more clearly? Um, or is it a reduction in medication use? Are they sleeping better and therefore they can process more effectively? What I call the direct versus indirect impact of using a cannabinoid-based product on cognition. And you sort of already answered this question, but I guess I'll, direct, I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Is there... Is there any research into cognitive performance with other anti-anxiety medications? Do they also improve it or, or not? <laughs> you know, it's a, an, an important area to look at. By and large, most folks who are on different types of conventional medications don't typically report improvements secondary to the medication specifically, right? Um, so I would have to look at that, um, actually. And, and that's, an, that's an interesting thought in terms of a very nice comp, uh, sort of comparison. Typically, what you hear from patients who are on anxiolytics or things to help them relax or sleep is, you know, I have this fuzziness, cognitive, mm. I have a bit of a hangover, I can't think clearly. Um, we've all heard stories of people using different medications who you know, had a little bit of difficulty, let's say the next day, say, oh, you know, it's this, it's this little cloud. I can't shake this cloud. I used to call it the cognitive cloud. Um, and that was very common in folks with anxiety. But, you know, I don't know of, of studies that have done acute challenges. These are more um, sort of uh, observational studies of folks who are using these types of products who, who then, you know, report these types of um, of cognitive difficulties. But that's an, that's an interesting question from an acute administration perspective. So I'm curious, what are sort of the more traditional or conventional medications doing that cannabis is doing differently? So I, I think it depends on the class of medication you're talking about. And I think, you know, you sort of hit on it earlier when you said, is that the, is that the entourage effect with regard to cannabis? You know, one of the things that I think is so extraordinary and still so relatively, so it's understudied, is what do we expect when we involve different, quote, players 
who exert or modulate effects using different mechanisms versus a medication, let's say a conventional medication that we know is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, right? An SSRI, common treatment for depression or um, anxiolytics or even you know, opioids. What is it that's different about cannabis? In my mind, one of, the thing that's, one of the things that's different is that you have multiple players addressing multiple sy systems. And so you're much more likely to have um, an effect that does not necessarily confer some of the same downsides, right? As, as something that is not as, as broad, I guess I would say. Um, to me, that's, that's incredibly important. And again, using the philosophy, I think, of most um, conventional medication approaches, you always want to use the lowest effective dose, right? Um, the lowest effective dose required to get, let's say, symptom relief. I think that in our studies, what we're finding is patients often begin using a certain regimen and then they wind up reducing the amount that they're using. It's interesting. We haven't seen people necessarily using higher and higher and higher doses of certain things. We actually see a little bit of a reduction over time. I don't know that that will hold, but that's interesting because the question I would then have is what does their endocannabinoid profile look like? over time, which is something that we'll also be looking at. So, you know, what do endogenous or inherent levels of, let's say, anandamide or 2-AG, our own um, endocannabinoids, what do those levels look like at the beginning of the study versus midpoint when they're using, you know, uh, a product with this amount of uh, THC or CBD versus the end when it might be a different story? That would be very interesting to look at. Well, so that is very interesting. So you're actually testing for endocannabinoids? Well, we haven't begun that part of our studies yet, but we have this set up now. Um, so we're very, very excited to be able to do that because I think that's one piece, you know, that's, that's an incredibly important part of the puzzle. You know, it's one thing, again, in the literature to look at, you know, studies that have used either non-plant-derived products or THC exclusively on acute symptoms like pain or muscle spasticity as a function of MS or nausea and vomiting as a function of chemotherapy, you know, um, it, it's one thing to look at, at um, again, that type of administration. But the big question is, when, when we really want to know what's the impact of cannabinoid-based treatment, we want to look at clinical and cognitive and conventional medication use, all of the, you know, the sort of outcome variables that we can think of, sleep, quality of life, and some of the neurobiologic variables that we can look at even from neuroimaging, whether it's in vivo brain metabolite ratios or how much of a certain uh, brain metabolite you have, let's say at the beginning of a study versus at the end of a study or what your brain structure or function may look like, all of these things will help us to build a much more comprehensive picture of what is possible. And so I think getting a profile, the endocannabinoid system, before, during, and perhaps after clinical trials or even longitudinal studies will be very helpful. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a question I've asked a few other guests who've been talking about the endocannabinoid system. Is there a, a test, a panel that you can run and sort of get a profile of what your endocannabinoids look like? And it didn't seem like there, there was, at least not widely available. So it's really exciting that, that you are going to be testing for that. That's, that's really interesting. It's certainly not um, what I would call you know, a, a simple, straightforward thing where you go and buy this thing off the shelf. Right. And in 20 minutes, you have a panel. Nope. If only. 
um, and it is not trivial with regard to the expense or amount of, of uh, effort required to do this. But frankly, you know, having the very first neuroimaging study of medical cannabis patients wasn't so easy either, but you have to do it. And it's really important, especially if you can control what patients are taking in a clinical trial and really look at this data again before and after. Um, you can really begin to make some um, important discoveries, I think, about what is and perhaps is not happening. Great. And now I guess I have to ask, we've heard all of the, the great benefits that cannabis can, can give, especially in this, this clinical trial for anxiety. Are there any downsides? Sure. You know, I think with, um, with anything, with any compound that actually can yield any effect, you always have to be mindful right, of what, what we call the good, the bad, and uh, the truth, right? So, <laughs> with regard to cannabis or cannabinoids, you know, so many constituents have been touted for so many things. And I'm the first to tell you that the open-label data is incredibly compelling, but it's open-label data. And these patients know that they're getting, quote, the sauce. Mm. So there is potential for, you know, expectancy effects to creep in. We actually have begun looking at that, and it's a really interesting story. I will tell you, I don't think the study findings are related to that. Um, but to your point, whether you're talking about CBD, THC, or whole plant products, whole spectrum products, broad spectrum products, it's important for people to remember that cannabis um, is complex. And some of these constituents, including CBD, especially CBD and THC, interact with things like uh, the primary uh, enzyme system of the liver, this uh, cytochrome P450 enzyme system, which means that inadvertently consumers could increase or decrease amounts of other medications or products. That's important. Yeah. So it's something to be mindful of. I think that products that are particularly high in THC could be problematic for some folks, for example, who are um, perhaps with all great intention, some uh, some folks get information from uh, cannabis devotees who say, look, I used this concentrate and it was fantastic for me and I felt so chill. They may not know that the person that they're recommending this to has you know, more than, let's just say, minor symptoms of anxiety, or they have a genetic predisposition and a very strong family history for perhaps psychotic disorder. We don't know enough about this just yet. Um, it could exacerbate some, let's say, less desirable effects. We don't want that to happen. So I think it's always important to be mindful of the potential downside um, and not go into these things assuming that it's absolutely benign and can do nothing but be helpful. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I think it's always good to seek out the, the counsel of experienced medical professionals who, who are used to administering cannabis that can help kind of guide you in your journey, for sure. Yeah, it's hard because everybody's also, we're not all created equally, right? So from a genetic perspective, that's a, that's a tough one. And, you know, people say, oh, you know, we know that cannabis causes psychosis. Well, I'm not really sure that we have the data to say that, but could it certainly make things worse for people with latent psychotic, you know, you know with, with either prodromal symptoms or very strong family or genetic histories. Um, this is something to be mindful of. Um, it doesn't mean you can never use it. It means you need to, it's sort of like not buyer beware, but buyer be aware, right? Be mindful. Um, know what's, what's, uh, what's in your weed, so to speak. I think it's incredibly important. Absolutely. And I think that might be a great place to stop. I definitely want to be respectful of your time and very much appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the podcast with us. 
But before I let you go, I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, tell folks where they can find more information about Mind, about you, if there's a website or social media or anything that you want to plug, please. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, I think um, most of the updates about the, the MIND program has a number of different studies from the longitudinal observational studies to the a number of survey-based studies to the clinical trials. We have a, a program dedicated to veterans uh, serving those who have served. We have a program dedicated, it's called WIM, or um, the Women's Health Initiative at MIND. We have lots of specialized initiatives. And you can learn more about that at www drstacygruber.com or just drstacygruber.com and that's actually the same uh, for social media for Twitter and Instagram I think so that's a great place to find some of some of the latest greatest stuff that's coming out of the lab including the the very newest study looking at hemp that the the clinical trial product and the THC positive status was really quite an interesting discovery so it's important I would check it out if you're using a hemp-based product and think, nah, I could never turn positive on a urine test. Well. <laughs> oh, that's not the case, huh? <laughs> not the case. 50% uh, of our sample was positive after four weeks, wow. despite zero reports, zero reports of intoxication or feeling high. And there was no relationship to the actual amount of study product used. We weigh the bottles on the way out and on the way in or body mass, um, so it didn't matter how big the folks were or how much product they were taking. We saw a relationship only with urinary creatinine, which is a measure of you know, kidney function and hydration. So really, really important, especially for, for people who think, you know, these urine tests, you know, the lower limit of detection is very often 50 nanograms per mil or in the workplace, sometimes it's 15. Our data also suggests that for some of those assays, um, they are more sensitive than they are um, supposed to be. We see positive results at far lower levels than 50 nanograms per mil. So we do the in-house test and then we send it out for quantification using GCMS and we were rather surprised. Wow. So are you doing, are you performing potency testing on the product it, itself as well? So is there just a lot oh. more THC than folks think is in there? Oh, no, no, no. Not, this isn't potency testing. This is just um, THC positive status for the, the clinical trial patients. Um, I see. So would you be positive if you used a hemp-derived product that's high in CBD and very low in THC? And, and I'll tell you, our study product has between 0 0.27 to 0.29 migs per mil. That's not by weight, that's migs per mil, okay? And um, a whole lot more CBD than that, somewhere around 10 migs per mil, which doesn't sound like a lot. But three times a day, you know, it's about 30 is the targeted dose for this study. And after such a low level, so that's less than one milligram of THC per day, after four weeks, would you be positive? And the answer is half of the sample was positive. That's wow. important, especially since products that you can buy commercially online, um, you can have 0.3% by weight, which uh, again, ours is yeah. 0.02. So it's more than 10 times the amount of THC as in our study product is legal. And our study folks, half of the sample was positive after four weeks. But despite never feeling high or intoxicated at all, nothing like that. Interesting. Were you only testing after four weeks or was it every week and it um, kind of really? accumulates in the body or is, how is that? We didn't test after every week. I see, okay. um, I, actually, no, no, I'm sorry. We, we have in-lab testing. We, we can actually look at that data. The big question really was after four weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but we did, uh, we sent uh, laboratory, um, we had laboratory analyses confirmed after 
uh, week three and week five. So it's after two weeks of product and four weeks of product. I don't think we published the two-week data, but we did um, weekly assays in lab. So really interesting stuff. Very much so. So much, so much to learn about this plant. Absolutely right. Never right. boring, that's for sure. Well, it'll keep us employed for a while, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Certainly couldn't be more interesting, and I'll tell you, with the, the sheer numbers of consumers and patients using cannabis for lots of different things, especially our older population, it's never been more important for us to understand. You know, again, I, I always like to say the good, the bad, and, and the truth. It's up to us to try to help people make the best decisions they can about a really complex but rather extraordinary plant. Excellent. And that's just what we're trying to do at CanMed. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena. Well, thanks so much. It'll be great to see you there. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stacy Gruber. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to Healer for sponsoring this episode. Go to healercbd.com and use the promo code CANMED to get 20% off your order. Our next episode will be on December 8th. In the meantime, go to canmedevents.com and sign up for our Giving Back campaign for your chance to win a free ticket to our medical practicum. If you're a medical practitioner, this really is a great opportunity and at no cost to you. I really hope you take advantage of it. And lastly, if you are listening via a podcast app, you can subscribe to our feed so that new episodes automatically download to your device. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review. All right, that's it from us. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you on the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.